I went out and raised that money not knowing if I could win. You know, I had to have my leg reamputated two, two or three years ago. That was extraordinarily difficult. Spent, spent kind of nine months in crutches, unable to walk. Is, you know, what are your chances of success? How much value is this actually going to create? And then of the value that I do create, how much can you actually capture? Hi, I am Tatiana Pandurovic and welcome to Moonshot, a space where comfort zones don't exist. Having spent most of my life scared to take risks, the one thing I am seeking now is to be surrounded by more people who are courageous, bold, unafraid and relentless in their pursuit for success to help inspire me and hopefully you. In this podcast, we dive deep into the minds of individuals who see no limits, those who dream big and defy boundaries. Let's rise together. Today on Moonshot, we dive into the extraordinary journey of Liam Malone, two-time Paralympic gold medalist, angel investor, and a fellow colleague of mine at Amazon Web Services. Liam is an icon of determination and adaptability, known globally as the top blade runner, surpassing the legendary Paralympic records of Oscar Pistorius. Liam's journey to record-breaking gold medals at the 2016 Paralympic Games is one of incredible perseverance and triumph. Beyond the track, Liam has embraced his passion for technology and innovation, contributing to the field of artificial intelligence with soul machines, and most recently as account manager at Amazon Web Services. Honoured with numerous accolades, including the New Zealand Order of Merit, Liam's story is a powerful testament to the human spirit. Join me for an inspiring conversation on today's episode of Moonshot. Liam, it's a pleasure to have you on the Moonshot podcast. You've got an incredible life story and are one of the most positive people. What do you think has made you the person you are today? Um, you know, re- introspection is always super tough, but I definitely had some key experiences growing up that I think shaped a lot of how I view the world. I don't think it necessarily shaped my identity, but just my perspective, I guess, out into the world. Some of those key experiences are um, I was born with a disability, um, which is called fibula hemimelia, led to both of my legs being amputated when I was two. My mum was diagnosed with cancer when, when I was around 12. She died when I was 18. Made a number of terrible mistakes throughout my teen years and then kind of turned things around by going to the Paralympics, became a Paralympic champion, won two gold medals, and then have been fortunate enough to spend some time working in startups, um, artificial intelligence startups, and then, of course, uh, as a colleague of yours at AWS. So, um, And then kind of outside of that, a little bit of angel investing, I guess a, a real zigzag of experiences throughout life. That's a lot. What really shaped your earliest childhood experiences? How did you live the life that you have? Because having a disability is unique in a lot of ways, just statistically, but not everyone with a disability or even without a disability even does half of what you've done in your life today. What was it in your childhood that really shaped you to be who you are? Well, you don't want to let statistics become self-fulfilling. And my parents very much took the view that because I had two artificial legs, it was not a reason to pull me out of um, participation in any event where having two artificial legs was clearly a significant disadvantage whether that be like athletics or swimming sports or uh, rugby on weekends. And so... You did rugby without both legs? 
Very, very poorly, I gotta say. In retrospect, you'd be pretty happy showing up to uh, a rugby match and seeing a kid with no legs on the other team. Would you, you or would you would you feel bad going in for a tackle? I think, you know, there were a number of experiences where going in for a tackle didn't work out so good for people that were tackling me. Tackling two carbon fiber steel legs with a bunch of components on them isn't the best. But in in general, I don't think any kid has that level of empathy at that age. So all smiles from the other teams in, in most instances. But where it was beneficial was that very early on, I experienced a huge amount of embarrassment and failure. And that was the cost of me participating in anything. And then as I've gotten older, the, the usual reason why people don't try things is the cost of starting is failure and embarrassment. And so that typically serves as a very large barrier. But for me, it's just part and parcel with um, the beginning of any activity. So that was really, really formative. And you know, another piece that was really important was that Despite having two artificial legs, both of my parents took the view that my capability in something, even though I was failing at most things, was a byproduct of bad technology with the prosthetics, not my own natural skill set, if that makes sense. So, And capability. Yeah, yeah. I was always of the view that as technology got better, my ability to perform in certain physical tasks would get better as well. And that certainly played out to be true. And like some key experiences were... Like my first cross country race, I think I came last by like 500 meters and I went home, I cried naturally as, as you would. And my dad told me that one day people would build me legs that allowed me to run faster than my friends. I went and parroted that at school and then it eventually came true. So there were lots of small things like that when my parents were very optimistic about my long-term trajectory, but were forceful in making me experience a lot of embarrassment and failure in the path to get there. That's very ahead of the times, especially thinking about technology, technological evolution and where you ended up getting to. In what other ways was your childhood impacted or even not impacted? Because it sounds like you were doing a lot of what any normal, like not normal's not the right word, but any kid without a disability normal, would be doing. Normal is the right word. I, yeah, I, you know, I think just like catching on that, part of the problem now is like people are very caught up in words. Like when I was growing up, you could have called me anything and it wouldn't have been a problem. And that was certainly the attitude that my parents taught me to adopt. And that's made life much easier. You know, so certainly wasn't a normal upbringing by any means. And, you know, it was those experiences that kind of allowed me to be a little bit more optimistic and and try a few more things down the line. So you have had a lot of moonshot moments and you listed a couple of them out earlier. With everything that you've done, what was the most defining moment of your life? What was the biggest moonshot you've taken? Well, the Paralympics is the obvious one because I hadn't run in about six years. I mean, the last time I ran, my leg fell off in a 100-meter race at school. So I went out to the New Zealand public and tried to raise the $50,000 I needed to get running blades, which are the two prosthetics specifically designed for amputees to run on. And I went out and raised that money not knowing if I could win. And so that in of itself was a very naive thing to do. And it worked out. So in terms of moonshots, that would be the biggest one that I've taken. I would probably make the argument that since the Paralympics, there's been a lot of mean reversion in the sense of I've probably become more risk averse and probably haven't pushed the boat out as as much as I should have. Why do you think that is? You know, going to the Paralympics, you you don't. Yeah, there's no fame that's attached to it, but there's enough publicity that 
you become more conservative in wanting to face any sort of public um, criticism. And, you know, I'm a pretty outlandish character. I think it'd be very easy for me to be cancelled, for lack of a better word. And that that's probably part of it. You know, I had to have my leg reamputated two, two or three years ago. That was extraordinarily difficult. Spent, spent kind of nine months in crutches, unable to walk. So just didn't have a chance to, you know, pursue like a high risk kind of activity or, or initiative. Yeah, but physically, right? Like not, not in any other means. Uh, I mean, in another means too, because I was like me on in crutches on one leg is very inhibiting. And so I was pretty much constrained to a bed and a couch. And so, so much of life relies on you to be out in the world, networking with other people, working on other things in different environments, right? Even just getting to an office. And yeah. then on top of that, just like the medication associated with kind of leading into surgery and post-surgery just kind of was a major inhibitor from a non-physical point of view as well. Um, I think I'm in a place now where I'm ready to get back to pursuing I guess what you would describe as more moonshot based activities and hopefully by July next year I should have something on the ground and and ready to run. So you talked about the really biggest defining moonshot moment as raising $50,000 to be able to actually invest in the technology needed to get to the Olympics in the first place but where did that idea even come from? Well at that point in time um, I was a university student binge drinking and not not successful in anything at that point in time. Um, I'd spent the previous year in Perth as a courier driver and living on minimum wage, not really getting ahead, having no dreams. And so what was really important at that point in time when thinking about taking a moonshot is where with my skills, which was zero, can I create value and then capture a percentage of that value? And like starting a business wasn't a possibility doing things like climbing New Zealand, New Zealand's tallest mountain probably wouldn't get that much publicity. So from like a social value capture point of view, you wouldn't really, you, there would be, there'd be nothing to gain. Um, the reason the Paralympics made sense was obviously Oscar Pistorius had gone to the Olympics um, in the previous cycle. He obviously wasn't competing anymore, but what that did draw attention to from, I guess, the regular world was the fact that you have this kind of combination between technology and biology in the Paralympics that did lead to this kind of abnormal performance where you had someone with a disability without limbs running almost as fast as people with limbs. And so I kind of looked at that and that made the most sense versus me starting a business, not having any good ideas. I thought it would probably fail very quickly. Whereas I thought that if I could go to the Paralympics, at least I would have some chance of success. And even though it probably wouldn't generate that much money, it would at least give me a profile to go and do other things. And I think that's an important part of evaluating whatever initiative that you kind of have at the top of your mind is, you know, what are your chances of success? How much value is this actually going to create? And then of the value that I do create, how much can you actually capture? People think of like sport as being very competitive. I kind of think of it being almost anti-competitive, certainly in the Paralympics. There's no one that's going to amputate their legs in order to be able to go to the Paralympics, at least not yet. Then there's just not that many amputees who can get to kind of get past the filters of life, whether that be hardship or the technology problem to be able to get to the Paralympics. Because there's such a big obstacle. Correct. It's like the, the biggest obstacle with getting into Paralympic sport is actually just overcoming the day-to-day challenges in life. 
once you kind of pass that, it's a little bit easier, right? So it's not actually as competitive as people would think, but it's perceived to be competitive. And, and that's quite a good thing. So yeah, that, that, were, that were kind of like the ways that I was thinking about it at that point in time. You said something that kind of reminds me of the importance of having an idol as well, or the notion that you can't be what you can't see in the way that Oscar Pistorius had done something that was like, there, there was an element of you could really relate to it. And it wasn't just, hey, he's got the same disability as me, but he's gone on and broken world records and done incredible things. And the impo- the importance of role models as well. So you decide you're going to go to the Olympics. Where does your journey begin? Because you don't have the technology up front. How do you start training? How do you start raising funds to even get there? Initially, just started cold emailing people from New Zealand's rich list, and that did not work out in any sense. But I met a reporter named Phil Vine. You were cold calling. You just started finding the contact details of what New Zealand's rich Yeah, are. yeah. Family offices, you know, guessing emails, all the sorts of things that you would expect from like a salesperson in a, in a tech startup, <laughs> which is what I'm doing now. But I met a journalist from, from TV3 who had to make a documentary. And even though he didn't have any money, he had access to viewers at scale. And we kind of put this documentary together, pitched it to the New Zealand public. And within 48 hours, we had the $50,000. So that was very important. But then you have this realization that you're actually going to have to do this. Had you run by this point? No, no. So very much began from the moment I had the $50,000 beginning with a Google search, like how do, how do I run fast? How to get fast at running? Because I didn't have a coach. I didn't have a team. I didn't have any running gear. I had nothing. And so that's where I began. And I began training in my walking limbs, which are not designed for running. And that's extremely painful. And then it was just this like slow progression of, I get the blades. Once I got the blades, you know, I was training by myself for kind of like two years, qualify for a world championships, come last in every race, and then eventually get to the Paralympics. And pretty much, you know, two thirds, three quarters of that was filled with uncertainty on whether or not I would actually make it, let alone win. But going to the Paralympic, world championships before the Paralympic Games, I kind of realized how important the technology was. And that was the eureka moment for me to kind of come back, change the way my blades blades were designed a little bit and um, turn things around. Is that after the Olympics or did you say that was after the first? Oh, so the world championships sit before the Paralympic Games. And so I went to the world championships before the Paralympics, came last in every single race and then made some adjustments and then got to got to the Paralympics. And that's where you noticed how big of an impact the actual technology made. That's correct, yeah. In the races that you were running. And on that journey, what were some of the biggest challenges you faced? Was it the athletic part of it? Were you a run-up before you even started on this journey? Was technology kind of the biggest challenge that you faced? What were some of those really tough obstacles that you had to overcome on that journey? I think the common one that's just true across most people trying anything is just not giving up too early. Um, because if I gave up, you know, six months beforehand, I wouldn't wouldn't have obviously gone to the Paralympics and I wouldn't have won. But there was no indication that I was going to win six months beforehand. So that's that's a part of it. And then it's just like a number of things, right? Building out a team, getting the right support around you, um, being disciplined enough to say no outside of everything out to, to everything outside of athletics in your life. What does that level of discipline look like? So you're training. What does your day look like? Yeah, wake up, go train. Then then it's like all the 1% stuff that is painful for someone like me who's got far too much energy, which is just like the rest, the recovery, all the 1% kind of activities that are 
to keep your body up and running and and not getting injured that I found probably the most challenging but to be honest as long as you don't get distracted and you can stay relatively disciplined it's pretty easy it's no different from having an everyday job obviously you have this like overhanging anxiety about whether or not you're going to win the whole time and you don't stop thinking about how your competitors are doing but outside of that I don't think being an athlete is as tough as say you know, maybe working in the emergency department of a hospital where you're saving lives. And so kind of holding that perspective made things easy. Um, but in terms of, you know, what was the most challenging part in order to win, I think the team and the technology part were probably the hardest. The technology you spoke to, to a degree in terms of having the actual investment and the, and the technology evolving itself uh, to be something that provides competitive advantage. What about the team? How was that a challenge? Well, I was starting by myself, not knowing how to run. And then I had to convince great coaches to coach me. And so then that's a risk on their behalf. It required me moving cities a number of times before I eventually got to Auckland to a high performance center. It's, there's no real science behind how do you train a double amputee to be as fast as a non-amputee. So it requires a lot of research on your, your team's behalf. But it's more just the process of getting to a point where in a short period of time, you're worth investing in, right? Because as an Olympian or a Paralympian, the those bodies that are funded by the government are pretty strained on resources. So they have to be very delicate on where they allocate capital on to who, who's most likely to win a medal next. And like I said, there wasn't a lot of indication that that, that was going to be me early on. And so you did a lot of work there to get investors on board, almost had to sell yourself while you were while you were really learning how to become a great sprinter uh, for a Paralympic Correct. race. So <laughs> you get to the Olympics. How are you feeling in the lead up to your first race? At that point, I thought I was going to win. I went to the, uh, the United States beforehand and competed against the American teams. And um, in true American fashion, they tried their hardest in the kind of these like mock races that we had at their Olympic training center, which I just let them win. And I kind of just sat on everyone's tails the entire time and um, realized I could have beaten them quite easily. So I went into my first race relatively optimistic. What was interesting about Rio, obviously the state of Rio de Janeiro had some financial troubles um, that were highlighted in the media at that point in time. And so from a performance point of view, it wasn't the best environment to perform at your peak in. So that made it a little bit challenging. In what ways? This was a 2016 Paralympics. Correct. Well, they, you know, they struggled to get the village completed in time. Um, the utilities weren't perfect. You know, they would have like curtains that were pretty much just like white blinds. So your room was entirely bright all night. And I'm a super sensitive sleeper. So that bugged the hell out of me. But in general, it was fine. At this point, I've been training for three years, right? So it's like, you almost want it to just be over and done with. You know that it's not going to be like winning the lottery. And so I thought at that point I had done everything that I possibly could. And I thought I'd done it better than what other people that I was competing against had done. And so that gave me a lot of confidence to, to perform. So before the race, were you feeling any nerves or were you just full of confidence? Nerves, not nerves in the sense of dread, but nerves in a sense of you don't know how things are going to play out, right? Like I still had zero expectation that I was going to win. I thought it was relatively unlikely that I would win after three years of training. Um, most of my competitors had been in the sport for probably closer to eight years and at least done one previous cycle. 
Uh, but I think all of that ultimately helped. At the end of the day, you're running around in a circle, right? Like, and so the idea that there's some level of pressure on that is a little bit outrageous. Um, and it's relatively easy to have fun with at the point in time. There's not really much benefit to putting all of that pressure on yourself. Um, I don't think it helps you perform in any way. So you win two gold medals, a silver medal, break the world record, all in the same Olympics. Yeah, correct. How does that feel? Well, at the time, like I said, it didn't, it didn't feel like winning the lottery because you'd worked very hard at it. And I thought very hard about it in terms of what was needed to win. I think what was special was I won my first medal on what would have been my mom's birthday. And then I had all of my friends there from high school. So they all flew over. They were there to support me. That was absolutely awesome. And then from there, it's, you, your cycle kind of begins again. So it's, the competition never stops. You kind of start thinking about the next world championships. And how fast were you? What, 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 what was your 200 meter time? Um, you think I would know this off the top of my head, but it was, I think it was 21 flat. So 21 seconds. I think Usain runs it in about 19.8 or something like that. So you almost run the 200 metres in the exact same time as Usain Bolt? Not quite. A second's a lot of time in, in 200 metres. But, but I think in terms of top speed, it would have been relatively close. So like as a double amputee, because you have no calf muscles, it's very difficult to accelerate to a top speed. It takes probably like 90 metres um, but then your top speed is very high and you don't fatigue as fast because you don't have any calf muscles to fatigue. So, so who knows? I think there's a lot of room for blade technology to improve. I don't think that's necessarily something that the Paralympics wants to incentivize out of fairness. And I, and I understand that, but I think it'll get to the point in the next 50 years where I think having a double amputee run as fast as a, as a non-amputee is pretty obvious at this point. That's amazing. What Was there anything that surprised you about your experience at the Olympics? You know, the thing that surprised me the most isn't to do with like performance or anything like that. Being surrounded by 10,000 people with various disabilities, you see the variety and scale of human attitude. And I remember meeting a guy with no arms and no legs, and he probably had the best outlook on life. He could laugh at any, any, any word you called him. He could laugh. He could handle any joke. And then you'd meet people with minor disabilities who would feel totally victimized by their situation, even though they're at the kind of Paralympics at this point and life was serving them pretty well. And from, from what I could tell, they weren't you know, too inhibited by life. And it kind of made me realize that your state of happiness and your perspective on life is by and large a choice in many respects. And that has a profound influence on those people around you. It's, it's much nicer to be around people who no matter what circumstance they're in, are extremely optimistic, happy, and can have a laugh about the situation versus people who are always kind of um, kind of looking to be negative and viewing their situation as, you know, a form of injustice. That that was probably the the biggest lesson that I took away from going to the Paralympics. And I think it's true that same situation is true across people who don't have disabilities. I would absolutely agree. And you're certainly one of those people who are extremely positive and generally optimistic. What fuels this positivity? Did you always have this attitude? Partly, it's hard to know. Again, introspection is hard. But like, do you want to be happy or do you want to be sad? And I think a large part of that is a decision that you go through life with. And I'd way rather be happy and be, you know, fun to be around than the opposite. And it's, that's, 
pretty much just how I think about it. I don't think it's, I don't think it needs to be any more complex than that. It's a much more enjoyable way to live. And so you have these pretty big achievements at the Olympics. How does your life change after that? Yeah, there's like some unexpected situations that occur. Received a phone call from the woman who built Vogue globally, who invited me to come and model at New York Fashion Week. They have diversity reasons, but whatever. Um, so from athletes so things like to models. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> those things are hilarious. Um, obviously, the people that you meet, you do build that sort of social presence that you can leverage for the future. Um, and you should, you know, leverage it for the, pursuing the right things, in my opinion. Um, never been interested in kind of like the influencer approach. Um, more interested in leveraging that to, I guess, build on um, new pursuits. Um, and then outside of that, you know, it just kind of taught me that life's not really a lottery ticket and it's what you make of it. And that, again, was another big lesson that I was able to take away. And so just kind of giving you or giving me that confidence for the future that if you work hard at things, you think about things in the right way, um, you surround yourself with great people, success is relatively simple uh, no matter what you pursue. And so I think that's probably more important than any specific event or moment uh, that was a byproduct of, of going to the Paralympics. Obviously you get the Nike sponsorship and everything else and that's really cool, but um, it's, I guess, the attitude shift that that's kind of sticks with you through time. And what was your mindset like after that experience? Did you continue running? Did you decide to pursue something else? What was next for you from that point? Yeah, I decided to continue running. Um, where it went wrong was I ended up with an injury that put me in crutches for a year. Then I missed the world championships. Then the Paralympics changed the way that blades could be designed to, to make it more even. And at that point, I decided to move on. So I moved out of athletics and went to work for a company called Soul Machines, which was very, very early in the generative AI space. Um, I mean, arguably not a generative AI technology, but building digital human beings that would now sit on top of the likes of ChatGPT or, or Claude. Were they, doing, um, point, were they doing things like digital twins? Not digital twins, uh, not digital twins in, in terms of like a digital twin of like a manufacturing environment, but like a digital twin of a human being. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Like and, a virtual version of a person. And so they were, that, they were doing that quite, when were you doing that? That was in 2000, and, 2000 end of 2017, 2018. They've recently just done like a, a digital twin of Francis and Ngannou. Um, really cool New Zealand company, incredible people to work with. Uh, at that point in time, they were kind of leveraging IBM Watson and Google Dialogflow, so the kind of preeminent technologies to the large language models that, that we underpin digital twins with today. And it's just really cool to see them kind of go through that journey and, and how early they were for a cutting-edge New Zealand tech company. And so how long were you working for them for? Um, about a year and a half. And so I you know, was really fortunate. I had an awesome boss who sent me all over the world, a guy named Greg Cross, and just kind of threw responsibility at young people in the company, um, sent me to Barcelona and Germany to go present at conferences that I certainly wasn't qualified to present at at that point in time. But I was able to leverage the fact that I'd done a lot of public speaking and so it all kind of worked out. But yeah, just a really, really fun experience all around. Oh, and so what made you leave? You're jet-setting all across the world, talking about a technology that is, it was really early. 
thinking about the evolution of AI, but even that type of technology, especially when you compare to where it is today and the technological evolution, what made you leave? I was in London at that point in time and had to get my leg reamputated. So I moved home to receive surgery. Um, unfortunately, came home and COVID hit, so that got delayed kind of by nine months. But just just medical reasons in general, a chance to kind of reset and set myself back up to be active for the future. Yeah, wow. So why did you have to go through a reamputation? Was that have you done that before? No. So it was a byproduct of just all of the training that I'd done as an athlete and. Basically, what had happened is like a bone spur occurred at the bottom of my leg where I bore all of the weight and just became extremely painful. I could I could barely walk, and um, they basically just had to grind down the bottom of my leg, and and yeah, it was a a, a bit of a scary time because I'd never really had any consequences as a result of being an amputee, bar just like day to day pain. But at that point, having to get more of my leg chopped off wasn't the most positive thing to occur at that time. And so like that sounds very painful. You've got to leave your job. What's your headspace at that point in time? Uh, my headspace was fine because that's just life. Like you, what, what more can you do, right? There's just so many things that occur outside of your control. I had watched my mum go through numerous surgeries with her cancer and she kind of just kept battling on. And so I think the general you know, attitude to life is to just kind of keep getting up, keep battling on and away you go. There's again that you can, you can think about these things a lot in the moment. I don't know how helpful that is um, because typically it's just the sun's going to rise again and you keep on carrying on. You speak about your mom a lot. Did she have a big impact on your life? Yeah, she certainly did. She was just like, she was a hard lady. She was very optimistic. She never let me get out of anything. Um, She defined a lot of the way that I see the world today. And she died very young. That was very impactful. And so, you know, I've just got to be really grateful for the time that I had with her and the way that she shaped me. It's just one of those, one of those few people that you get to come into contact with in life. And my dad too, um, who, you know, were the right people to raise a kid facing uncertain circumstance uh, with, with, with having a disability. And how do they show up for you throughout your life? So you talked about some of the traits that they had that, you've evidently taken on board as part of your character and personality as well. How did both of them shape who you've become today? I'll give you an example from my mum. When I was in uh, my last year of primary school, my leg fell off at a 100-meter race, and um, she wasn't even there to watch, but she showed up kind of 20 minutes after once the school had called and notified her that my leg had fallen off in front of 1,200 kids. And she showed up with a roll of duct tape to tape my legs up and to make me run the 200 meters afterwards, knowing full well that I would lose, right? Because at this point in time, my legs are made of like wood and rubber and crappy fiberglass. So that was the type of determination that my mum had to ensure that I didn't quit on anything just because it was tough. And then was just incredibly empathetic at the same time. You know, she did acknowledge that it was, you know, life was hard for me at that, at that time in certain circumstances, but they did a pretty good job at, at making it normal. Dad was the same, like just, very optimistic, always said the technology would improve, you know, said that my life would, would work out regardless if I just had the right attitude and worked hard at things. So really basic parenting concepts. And I think maybe the one that's lost today is just allowing your kids to get out of things because, you know, fear of embarrassment or fear of failure. It's super important, isn't it? Just to get used to that feeling, because if you want to achieve anything 
of significance in life, you've got to go through those feelings and emotions. Absolutely. What do you think it takes to be successful in any pursuit in life? Um, Again, you need to be able to find the right thing. So I think if you focus on something that's hyper competitive, it's very hard to create like a marginal increment in value. And so like, if you looked at something as like hyper competitive as maybe my friends who went to law school or maybe even med school, you know, you're competing with like the brightest minds. There's thousands of people who do it. And it's extremely tough to maybe separate yourself from the pack. And so I think working on things that are unique is somewhat important. You obviously have to have some mix of talent and then the kind of social aspects, being able to bring a team around you, having the discipline to continue at something when you're not not succeeding. You need to be, you know, have some level of luck. You need to be born in the right country in some respects. Then there's just like a whole lot of uncontrollables that I think, you know, you have to try and account for in advance to ensure that whatever it is that you're pursuing doesn't fail. Those would probably be like a list of them. Obviously, the ambition part's massive as well. Like you're not going to succeed at anything without some insane level of ambition. Um, But again, it really depends on what you're pursuing. And I think uh, you mentioned to me when we first met, I think you had, you said you had pursued uh, a venture of your own as well. You had an e-commerce store at some point. How did this come to be? Well, I had to get by when I had both of my leg, well, when I had my leg reamputated. So when I was kind of bedridden and stuck at home, I needed something to do. What a better time to start a business. Yeah, exactly right. Well, I mean, I was, you know, I was taking all this tramadol and stuck in bed and it's, you can only work intermittently. And I was actually trying to interview for jobs at the time and I would show up to these job interviews in crutches with like this cast around one leg, right? So this, I'm showing up as like an amputee on one, one leg in crutches with this giant cast, not knowing when I'd be able to walk again. And so it was, it was quite the sight, but that was kind of the, the instigator for me to just kind of rely on myself it's just relatively easy then you kind of go out and look for products that are selling well in foreign markets in the US or in Europe and it's relatively easy to replicate for Australia and New Zealand and so you just kind of go through this methodical approach and it's surprisingly easy it gets got harder at the end of covid when you kind of had this bullwhip effect across supply chains where you you know we're having increased shipping costs manufacturing costs out of china storage costs here in New Zealand, which made it much harder to kind of price product, predict demand, um, and, and all of those things. And so for me, that was really about riding through the surgery and this kind of like, you know, not health scare, but for lack of a better word, health scare, and then kind of realign myself back to technology, which is what I'm passionate about. And that's how I ended up being able to come and work with you. Amazing. And what's it been like being at Amazon? Awesome. It's one of those situations where the caliber of people is very, very high. Um, As you know, we have a peculiar culture at Amazon. Um, I would say it's probably the most unique out of any of the large corporates in the world. It still has a day one culture. It still has a startup culture. Very, very fortunate in New Zealand to have a unique team culture that reminds me of being an athlete where everyone, you know, that I'm as my team is an independent contributor in the same way that I was an independent runner, but there's a lot that um, everyone gives to one another in terms of energy, support, feedback, learning, everything else, as much help as you need. So it's a, it's a fantastic company to work for and 
you know, grateful every single day to, to have the opportunity to work with some of the world's best technology and our technology partners as well and deliver great outcomes for our customers here in New Zealand. You've done lots of different things. If we've got, well, to the listeners that might be thinking about starting their own business or do they follow the corporate pathway? Do they do something completely different uh, with their lives? What advice would you give them given the diversity of experience that you've had? Um, yeah, I mean, it depends on where they're at in that life. Like if you're, if you're coming out of university and you've got a lot of talented friends, then by all means, try and pursue building a technology company. Again, you could go out, you could build a services business. I think there's some upsides to working in, in corporations. I think there's a lot of learnings that you can take away very early on. You know, we're both very fortunate that we get to work for Amazon in New Zealand and Australia. We don't, obviously, we, we don't have the largest tech presence from the big technology vendors, right? Versus, say, living in Silicon Valley where it's pretty abundant and it's easy to get jobs at those companies. Um, if you know, you're working for a corporation and you're in some you know, isolated geographic region of Australia or New Zealand, I think it's a good idea to move to the city, try get a job at a corporate where at least you can meet the right people to go out and, and start something yourself. But again, depends on the level of ambition that you have. My best friend, you know, he quit university. He's not academic in any sense, but he has more energy than 10 people. He went out and started a services business and that's now extraordinarily successful. And he just kind of did that off extreme hard work and just sticking around the longest. So just as he described himself, a compounding time type of guy. And that works out too. So I don't think there's any right formula. I just think it depends on you as an individual and, you know, your risk profile and how hard you're willing to work and stick around at it. Do you think there's an element of circumstance as well? Have you heard of Malcolm Gladwell? Yeah, yeah. I've read some of Malcolm Gladwell's books. I think circumstance is a part of it. Obviously, you have timing and talent and, and all of those things. But as I get older and I see people who have become successful, so much of it is just built on them being you know, relentless in their pursuit of something. And you now I feel like I could pick those people a lot better and the people you probably wouldn't want to bet against. So circumstance is fine, but I think a lot of it is is more individual responsibility. How did you get into angel investing? Um, I met a guy named Andy Hamilton who ran the the kind of venture um, capital angel syndicate here in Auckland, which was much more immature than where it's at today. Met a uh, a guy who's become a good friend named Jack McGuire, who's who's my age, who's a um, partner at Ice House Ventures, and that was sort of the beginning of it. I also went through an incubator while at university. Uh, with the founders of a company called Cheersies, which is um, you know a customer who's built on AWS, and um, they were at the bank at the time. I was trying to build 3D printed prosthetics, and they were trying to do Uber for dog walking. Both of those failed. They eventually went on to start Cheersies, and it was by um, circumstance of meeting them through that incubator that I was sort of given that deal flow, and um, so much of the deal flow later on is just based on who you know and are you willing and you know are you dumb enough to just give you know young ambitious founders your money to go and pursue things what do you look for when you're investing in a business well obviously the idea has to be relatively right and you can't know like i i can't know everything about everything in terms of you know what products or what industries viable to pursue but i think going back to those traits of being able to build an incredible team being extremely relentless in the face of failure, um, working very, very quickly, 
think that's something that's underrated is like how fast someone can get things done. Are they curious as a person? Are they willing to stick around through like a, a winter technology winter? I mean, there's just, there's a long list of things, you know, is the founding correct at the, the starting stages? Because if it's kind of broken at the beginning, it seems very difficult to fix. Do the unit economics make sense? That's obviously a big part of it. Does it make sense for them to raise funding? Or is it just going to be a services business where the founder gets diluted and then kind of doesn't have the level of ownership required to keep pursuing that business? There's a number of things. Some good things to think about for anyone who is on the journey or seeking investment for one of their businesses. Liam, with everything that you've accomplished, what are you most proud of in life? Um, well, I just got engaged to to now my now fiance Madison. Oh, congratulations! So she's awesome, and yeah, yeah. I think that's probably number one. Punching well above my weight, and she's absolutely incredible, and we make a great team. So, looking forward to getting married, and I think that is just one. It's one of those things in life. Like you can go and you can pursue the Olympics, you can do all sorts of different things, but it's the, the things that have like a duration of time attached to them that are the most meaningful in your kind of like day to day happiness and. She's easy go lucky. She's very ambitious. She's interested in the same things as myself. She's got her own show called Markets of Medicine. So go and give that a watch. She interviews different CEOs and venture capitalists out of America, um, all sorts of incredible people. And I'm super proud of her. And and yeah, we're just we've got two German shepherds and we're building a really cool life. And I think that's something to be proud of. That's amazing. How did you propose? Not very well. I had both of the dogs with me. And I got down on one knee at the beach and she, well, I, she was like, we, we, the dogs don't want to go for a walk. My German shepherds are crazy. They were just going nuts at one another and she wasn't facing me. And then I said, well, we're not going for a walk. And then I kind of got down on one knee. But then when I got down on one knee, the dog started digging at her feet and it all just kind of <laughs> fell to bits. But that was, a, it was very much how I would propose and, you know, lucky enough to get the yes pretty quickly. That's um, very cool. I wish you all the best of success and adventure uh, with the life that you're building together. Last question. What piece of advice would you have given your 20-year-old self or would you give your 20-year-old self knowing everything you know and all the experiences that you've had? That everyone else is just making it up as they go along, for one. You know, I went to university. At university's probably bad because it teaches people that credentials are hyper important and the opposite is true and so knowing that everyone else is kind of just going through life making it up as they go along failing learning readjusting and that you don't really need to worry about failure too much as long as you can get back up and act in a way that's ethical then life life is relatively simple so that that would be my one piece of advice liam thank you so much you've got the most incredible mindset, have done so many amazing things to date and you've still got a long way to go. I'm very excited to continue watching your journey, being inspired by you, and then hopefully having this chat with you again once you've done the next exciting thing in the series of your life. Thanks, Tat, and I'll see you in the Sydney office next year. Sounds good. Thanks, Liam. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Moonshot. If you felt inspired today and are curious about taking your own personal growth to the next level, check out my performance coaching website at leadwithtatiana.com. For more insights, stories, and behind-the-scenes content, follow me on Instagram at tatiana.moonshot. And if you have guest suggestions or topics you'd like explored, send me a DM. I'd love to hear from you. 
See you soon for another inspiring conversation that might just be the catalyst to the growth you've been seeking.